In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. The, uh, the city of Richmond, Virginia, uh, announced not long ago uh, a new statue to be erected in that town. It's by an artist named Kehinde, Kehinde Wiley. You may be familiar with that name. Uh, he's the one who painted the portrait of President Obama uh, not too long ago. And this statue is clearly designed as a response to the many Confederate statues that you find in the town of Richmond. If you've ever visited there, you're probably familiar with Monument Avenue. Um, interspersed at the various intersections are statues uh, to people like Stonewall Jackson or Jefferson Davis. Um, and of course, the centerpiece of all this is this huge equestrian statue with one single word underneath it reads, Lee. <laughs> um, and of course, this new statue is a response to all of that. And, and uh, well done, Richmond, for uh, at least coming up with some response to that dark part of our nation's history that still affects every part of our society today. But as I was reading the article about this new statue, uh, a story uh, came to mind that I heard a number of years ago. Uh, it's about a family from uh, Nebraska, I think, who moved to Richmond. And um, so their seven-year-old boy apparently was infatuated with Lee's statue. They lived not far away, and uh, he loved to play around it all the time. Well, two years later, uh, this boy's gypsy corporate father was transferred yet again, never easy on a family, of course. And as the moving van was about packed and as they were getting ready to leave, uh, the little boy turned to his father and said, could I go down and see my statue just one more time? And the father said, well, of course, let's go. And, and as they arrived at the statue, the boy started to cry. And his father says, now look, this is not the last time you'll ever see this. I will bring you back to see Lee again. And that seemed to assuage his grief, if only momentarily. They're walking back to the house, and the son turns to his father, and he says, you know, Daddy, I've always wanted to ask somebody, who is that man sitting on Lee? So I was told that story by a guy who went to school in Richmond. And uh, he said that every time he told it to a group of native Virginians, no one cracked a smile. <laughs> Apparently, there is no one in Virginia who, who thinks it is a good thing that someone could actually not know the difference between a horse and Robert E. Lee. But whatever their attitude, I still think the story has a point beyond what is just a good laugh for us here in the North. And that is that historical truths have to be shared if they are going to survive. A little boy in Nebraska has absolutely no way of knowing the difference between a horse and Robert E. Lee unless somebody shares the story. You see, we put our finger on information in a couple of different ways. 
Part of it, of course, is that we observe things for ourselves. We stand and we look at something and we make certain inferences from what we can see. However, there is another form of truth. We call that story. That is, someone tells us how it came to be and what it signifies. And with that, a whole new dimension of meaning becomes available to us. And my sense is that things are most fully experienced when both of these, that is, observation and story, come together and we not only see with our own eyes, but we hear the story that is the context and the background and the secret behind its meaning. A number of years ago at my old church, we used to run a vacation Bible school, but we used to take it on the road to a camp. And this particular year, we were in Saugatuck, right along uh, the, uh, the shoreline of Lake Michigan, an absolutely beautiful setting. One night, we invited each cabin to bring their sleeping bags down onto the, uh, to the beach to do some stargazing. Well, I had certainly spent plenty of time looking at the stars before that, but that very night, one of the counselors, a volunteer counselor, a good friend of mine by the name of Anne, uh, started to tell the story of the constellations. And as we lay there, so help me, it was like the sky came alive before my eyes. Because, of course, these two dimensions of truth, observation and story, were being brought together. In a similar way, what I'm suggesting is that the historical dimension of our religion is a crucial thing. And that if we don't work at remembering the story side of our faith, we are going to lose something very precious. And we are in danger of doing that in our society right now. That is why Moses, after he had given the Ten Commandments, but before the people entered into the Promised Land, he says to them, keep these words in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you lie down and when you rise, when you are at home and when you are away. Yes, even when you are on summer vacation. And what Moses is referring to here is not just the commandments themselves. He's talking about the story that precedes them. So many of you, I suspect, if I were to press, you could name most of the Ten Commandments. You would be less familiar, however, with the prologue to those two tablets of stone. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of bondage. What Moses is concerned about, you see, is not just passing on a moral code, but rather the story of God's mighty acts in history. You see, in primitive religions, Nature was the vehicle through which people got their inferences about God. They simply looked at the world and inferred the kind of creator behind it all. And our biblical religion is no stranger to that kind of sensing God in nature. So our very first video was intended to uh, bring that out for you. It's taken from Psalm 8. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament 
proclaims his handiwork. So our Hebrew forebearers believed that nature could convey a sense of the holy. However, they also said that what God has done in history is also a medium of revelation. So it's not just the grand stage that God has created, but the events that took place on that stage also gives us clues into the mystery. That is why so much of the Bible is story. So much of our understanding of God is telling folk what happened a long time ago and how that influences our life spiritually. So we retell the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We relive the story of the Exodus and how God was at work in the Israelites during their history in Palestine. And of course, the climax of that whole story is when God so loves the world that he sends his only son into that history as the primary way of us knowing what God is really like. And so, this week we have been retelling the stories of Daniel in the lion's den and the good Samaritan and the leper who returned to give thanks and Queen Esther. Why? Because you see, every generation needs to hear that anew. The story side of truth is only one generation away from extinction. All it would take is for one generation to neglect the story and not pass it on. And we could continue to observe things with our unaided eyes, but the reality is stories only live on when somebody bothers to tell them. Some of you have heard me say, God has no grandchildren. What I mean by that is that every generation has the responsibility of not only hearing the story, but of passing it on. Otherwise, we revert to only one mode of revelation, and that would be a tragic diminishment. I don't know of anyone in modern history uh, who had found more religious significance in nature than the great writer C.S. Lewis. During the days when he was actually healthy, um, Lewis would walk two or three hours every day through different parts of the British Isles. Every afternoon, noticing the intricacies of nature and seeing beyond them the great lover of beauty. He affirms again and again in his writings the tremendous sense of God's presence that he feels in nature. And yet Lewis would be the first to say, that he learned things about God through the stories of the Bible, he never would have discovered looking at a sunset. He said once, I learn more from Easter than I do a glorious mountain. That's for all of you skiers. Because there is nothing about a magnificent natural scene that suggests to me that God loves the world and me enough to send his only begotten son and when we rejected and killed him, he would turn around and not only raise him from the dead, but send him back to the very people that did that. That kind of mercy comes only through a knowledge of story. It doesn't come through any natural scene. Kathy and I were just out at the Grand Canyon, and it is grand, and it is awesome. Kathy would tell you, when we got to the first observation deck, um, her eyes literally filled with tears. 
But there was nothing from that scene that called to me about God's justice or God's love or what I am called to do in my life, nothing. So Lewis said, people often said to him, I really feel closer to God when I'm just out in the woods or on the golf course than I do in any church. And he said, I know the experience of closeness that they're talking about. But he said, I have to say to those people that while I do have that awesome sense of beauty out there in nature, I am never called to the highest reaches of my human possibility in that kind of setting. He said, I have looked at the grandeur of a sunset, but that has never called me to love my enemy or to forgive 70 times 7 or to deny myself and pick up a cross and follow him. He said, maybe the reason why some people prefer the woods to the church is because it is only in story that we hear of the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of partnership God has called each and all of us to. So on this special Sunday when we celebrate Vacation Bible School, let's recognize what is really going on here. Behind all the fun songs and the great crafts, the wonderful snacks and the incredibly fun games, the story is being passed. It is the greatest story ever told, but only if it is told. And not just the story of who God is, but of who we are. Because the beautiful thing is that we, as we study about Moses and Joseph and David and Samuel, we really do learn something about what it means for each of us to be children of God. My favorite mentor, John Claypool, uh, used to talk about one of his favorite uh, human beings. It was the father of one of his friends who had fought during World War II, had actually been involved in the Battle of the Bulge, and uh, somehow managed to survive all of that. And every once in a while, they would be able to coax some of those war stories from him. And uh, this was John's favorite. The man said that once, during the Battle of the Bulge, intense conflict going on, the Americans were convinced that the Germans were about to attack and so they mined the field between them and, uh, and the German position. They carefully marked uh, where all of the explosives had been planted. Well, the next day, he and four other soldiers were sent on a reconnaissance mission. They had to cross this field very carefully, noting where all of the markings were, and to try to find where the enemy was and what they were about to do. Well, sometime in the mid-morning, a heavy snow began to fall. And by noon, the commander of the group said, it's impossible for us to finish this mission. We have to get uh, back to our lines. But when they got to that field that they themselves had just made so explosive, a foot of snow had covered all of the markers. And there was no way of telling where the deadly mines were planted. So the leader of the platoon said, look, I helped to lay out those explosives. I'm going to get very quiet now, and I am going to try my best to remember where they are. He said, what I want the other four of you to do is to follow me, single file. I want you to put your footprints 
Where I have put mine, I will do my best to get us home. The man said that step by step, for what seemed like an eternity, those five picked their way across that perilous terrain, and they were able to get home. The next morning, he said he went out and looked at that snow-covered field, and there was only one set of footprints where four people had gotten home safely because they followed the footsteps of one who knew. We do not live in a world where no one has ever gone before us. We do not have to discover every mystery again for ourselves. There have been those who took the story seriously and who embodied it in their lives. God has no grandchildren. We are each and all of us children of God. But historical truth must be shared if it is going to survive. So let us heed the example of those who have gone before us. And then let us pray that God makes us faithful in not only hearing, but in sharing the story with our blessed children. Let it be, O oh God. Let it be. Amen.